who received the epistle email blast during the week, you saw that this morning's sermon comes with a content warning. So I just want to put that out there again. Today, this sermon is rated mature audiences. So if the person sitting next to you, or you, are not mature, uh, talk to someone after the service about some of the questions that may come up as a result of looking closely at this text. But when I started in seminary, I had a vision for what my ministry was going to be. Uh, I felt called to go to the artistic, atheistic, intellectual communities of the world. I wanted to be an apologist. I wanted to be in the streets. I wanted to be in the pubs. I wanted to be in the meetings of the Free Thinker Society. I wanted to be where the people are who are having the big conversations and have dismissed the one who is the answer. I wanted to be in those places so I could learn to understand them, so I could have compassion on them, so that I could love them well by speaking truth well to them. So I started consuming everything I possibly could that had anything to do with defending the faith. Whether it was William Lane Craig or Norm Geisler, Storman Norman Geisler, uh, Ravi Zacharias, Tim Keller, I was reading everybody I could. Uh, These men became examples for me of what it was to faithfully represent the gospel. Some of you heard one of those names, and an eyebrow has gone up. One of those men, uh, after he passed away, it was discovered that he had lived a double life. For over 40 years, he had been abusing, using, and in one case, raping women. All of this stayed in the shadows until it came out into the light. And as a result, the legacy of Ravi Zacharias, one of the great apologists of the 20th and 21st centuries, has been compromised. Beyond compromised, we we don't talk about Ravi anymore. Because he brought, through his actions, such shame on the message that he professed and proclaimed for so long. Uh, this, This was a hard blow for me. Uh, One of his books, Jesus Among Other Gods, was very influential in in my thinking as a burgeoning apologist. I had placed him, along with so many others, on a pedestal. Nobody belongs on a pedestal. Uh, But Ravi, Ravi fell, and he fell hard. And it's hard to think about the impact that that's had on people who were affected by his ministry. But more than that... I can't get my mind away from thinking about the women, the women who trusted him, the women he used and abused, the circumstances and situations he created to entrap them. It's a dark story, and I don't want to go into it any more than that this morning. But it's heartbreaking. Well, we just heard from Carrie Jane, Second Samuel chapter 11, the first six verses, And it's a story that we're pretty familiar with, David and Bathsheba. It's one of those that goes down in the history books, quite literally, in a book of history called 2 Samuel. But it's one that goes beyond the church, David and Bathsheba. People know the story. Well, this morning, I want to take a look at the story, a hard look at the story, and recognize that 
every single one of us faces a twofold danger. There is the danger of slipping into a pattern of sin unawares that intensifies and intensifies until we open our eyes and have no idea how we got there. Like, I'm guessing, Ravi or Ted Haggard or King David. But the other danger is becoming a victim. Becoming a victim of one who sees us as less than a person and more of an object or a tool to be used for their purposes. So this, this morning's sermon is a bit of a downer, but when we look at the text, my prayer is we can answer the question, how do we guard our hearts against corruption and compromise? What can we learn from this very difficult story about how to live more faithfully as men and women who desire to represent our king that we just sang about, King Jesus, well? Well, so far, as we've been going through the life of David and we've been looking at First and Second Samuel, as we've been looking at these texts, we've gotten two different pictures of legitimate Israelite kings. One, through King Saul, we have a picture of anger and sin and compromise and wickedness. And then in King David, we've had it up on the slide every single Sunday, a man after God's heart. And we got to say, the chapters that we've been looking at so far, King David comes out as a shining star. He is representing the king of Israel well as the king of Israel. And then today, things take a sharp left turn. What happens today in this text, King David jeopardizes the entire kingdom, the the nation of Israel, and really his, his own life is put in danger because of his actions. Uh, One commentator, Bill Arnold, says the inspired text invites us in to consider that we too may be capable of such dark behavior. Let none of us be so blinded by pride to think that we're not one decision away from changing our lives in not a good way. So with that encouraging, upbeat introduction, uh, let's, let's look at the text. Carrie Jane read for us that This was the season where kings go to war, and they're going out to fight against the Ammonites, and this is the big Ammonite war. If you remember last week, I mentioned the disgraceful thing that happened to King David's men. He sent them as ambassadors, as friends, to encourage a man who just lost his father. The king had died. The new king has stepped up, the king's son, and he sent men to offer comfort, and the Ammonite king humiliated and dismissed King David's men. Well, verse 1 gives us the timeline. It has been one year. Today is the anniversary of that disgraceful treatment of his emissaries. So there is no doubt why he is besieging the Ammonites. They did David dirty, and now he's going to do them harm, as kings in the ancient Near East would do. But he stays behind. Now, some read into that, well, he stayed behind because he was cowardly. He stayed behind because he had evil agenda in mind. I don't think so. Uh, His general, other men, had said, King, you are the king. You have led us to slay thousands of enemies of Israel, but now you are the king, and you need to rule, and you need to reign, and you need to be safe. So send us out, Joab said. 
and you stay. So this is not necessarily a bad motivation that he stayed behind. So one evening, as his men are out fighting the war, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. This is a very common thing. So in the ancient Near East, it's, it's hot. In Dallas, Texas, and today, it's hot. <laughs> and so what they would do is they would go up to the roof so they could experience the breeze and the coolness and not just the oppressing heat radiating off the walls. And King David's palace was located near the wall of the city, and it would have been the tallest building there. And so when he's on the roof of the palace, he is able to look out and see Jerusalem. He's able to see the city. And if he looks down, he can see other people's rooftops. He can see other people's courtyards. And that's exactly what happened. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. I want to highlight here that there is no indication in the text And if I had more time, we would spend some time looking at this. If you have questions, I'd love to talk. If you buy the coffee, I will talk as long as you want me to. uh, About what we can learn and what we know about the David and Bathsheba story. But there is no indication here whatsoever that Bathsheba made herself intentionally visible to seduce the king. It's simply not present in the text. In fact, the the context would suggest the opposite, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, She is on the roof doing what is necessary for her to do, as we'll see. And the cultural etiquette of the day, I mean, this was a common thing. People would go up on the roofs to be cool and look out. And there was a contract, if you will, a social contract, that when you go, your eyes look out. They don't look down. Because down is where other people's privacy is. And and we've experienced this whether it's a family member or we're in a different cultural context than where we are here in North America and you're walking through a courtyard and you see somebody doing something that is private. They're not doing anything wrong. It's a private thing. Well, what do we do? Well, that's not my business. My eyes are going to stay over here. But here what we see is King David's glance became a gaze and she was beautiful. He broke the contract, if you will. So already things are starting to go south. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And the messenger, the servant, comes back and says, "Uh, isn't this Bathsheba? He's not asking a question. I just want to make that very clear. He's not asking a question. He's speaking to the king. Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David has no excuse at this point. He has been told exactly who she is. He has been informed of her attachment to his court. Uh, Her father, her father is uh, one of his soldiers. Her grandfather is one of David's mighty men. These 30 gibberim, these these mighty men, his right-hand arms when he goes to war. Bathsheba's grandfather was one of those mighty men and the wife of Uriah the Hittite who is another of those 30 men. So two of these figures are advisors and effectively kin, soldiers, brothers in arms with King David. And the other is a trusted advisor in the court. And Bathsheba is family. I I see the messenger's words here as a not-so-subtle warning. 
a king. Isn't this uh, Bathsheba? You know Bathsheba. The daughter of one of your comrades in arms? One of the mighty men of value? You know your main advisor in the court? That's his granddaughter. Bathsheba. That's who that is. King David, may the king live forever. Don't do anything stupid. That's not in the text. (laughs) But I read this and I see, ah, it's right there. David has no excuse for him to dwell on this thought any further. Just dwelling on the thought, he's committing adultery. Because at that point, uh, as, as we read in the New Testament, in Matthew 5, 28, he, he's lingered unhealthily on this woman that he has no right to linger on. She's not an object for his consumption. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We go on. David sent messengers. Let's listen to the verbs. David sent messengers to take her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. He sent. He took. She came. He lay. These are strong verbs that are present here. And I think when I look at that take, do you remember when... You know, these books are named after the prophet Samuel. When the people first said, we, we are tired of prophet Samuel, we want a king. All the other nations have kings. We want a king. Samuel talked to God, and God said, well, if they want a king, they can have a king. But I want you to tell them, Samuel, what they can expect. And he did. In 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 and following, Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These are the rights of the kings who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and to reap his harvests. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and your servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves will become his servants. When that day comes... You will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. Samuel warned them. You want a king? Kings take. Kings are takers. David's been great so far. But now in chapter 11, King David, he's giving them what they asked for. He's becoming a king who takes. Now there's this parenthetical line that is heartbreaking and adds so much context to what's going on with David and Bathsheba. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. So when he looked out and then looked down and beheld this beautiful woman, she was bathing. But the bathing she was doing, it was her mitzvah. She, She had just finished her cycle. And the cycle, five days... And then the period of uncleanness following that cycle, seven days. On that seventh day, after the end of the cycle, you immerse yourself in the mitzvah. And that is how a woman becomes clean after being ceremonially 
unclean. Then she'll be able to enter into the temple. Then she'll be able to be with others without threatening them to become unclean. So what was Bathsheba actually doing? She was engaging in an act of faithful temple worship. She was obeying the law, and she was ritually cleansing herself so that she would be able to worship rightly. This is what David saw. But there's something else. If she's doing this, if this is her mitzvah, and that's what the text explicitly tells us, she was cleansing herself, that means she wasn't already pregnant. One. She was not pregnant with Uriah's child because she just finished her cycle. Two. Cycle ends seven days of unclean, and I had to research this because I'm a white guy who doesn't know much about uh, the female cycle. So I talked to one of my five daughters, and she set me straight. Uh, there's an app that has so much information. Uh, seven days after your cycle ends, peak time for conception. This is when the woman would be most fertile, and this is when David took her, sent men to take her. So she is at her most fertile. She is not pregnant until she is. She was pursuing holiness. She was pursuing holiness, and the king was pursuing corruption. It's heartbreaking. I want to take a second and just look at what we often hear, what I have heard over the years when I've heard this text taught or preached, and then what the text actually tells us. And just to kind of recalibrate a little bit uh, so that we can think well about this text and not dismiss it too quickly. Uh, what we often suggest, and I'm, I'm taking this from a former colleague of mine, Sarah Bowler, who has done a lot of work on this particular question of David and Bathsheba. What we often suggest is that Bathsheba bathed on top of a roof. Well, textual and cultural studies indicate she was most likely in an enclosed courtyard. She was in a private courtyard that you can see down into. What we often suggest is Bathsheba bathed naked to seduce or provoke. She was obeying temple law and performing mikvah in order to be made ceremonial clean. She wasn't attempting to seduce or provoke. What we often suggest is Bathsheba's immodesty caused a king to stumble. What the evidence suggests is that David was a peeping Tom. This is not what we want to hear. It's been a great study of the life of David so far, a man after God's own heart. It's win after win in the column. A peeping Tom? That's what the evidence suggests. What we often suggest is that Bathsheba came willingly to the palace. David sent messengers, plural, to take her, to bring her to him. And then what we often suggest is that this was an affair. Bathsheba had an extramarital affair with King David. I don't like saying this next line, but the evidence suggests, the text suggests that King David raped Bathsheba. This is a fall. This is a fall that is as heartbreaking, if not more so, than the fall of Ravi Zacharias and others like him. This is the king that God anointed. This is the one who has a, a heart after God's own. Yet, here we go. The, the, text, the text is teaching us this. This is not critical scholarship trying to tear it down. This is what the text provides. And if we go into the Psalms, we can see the Psalms that David wrote after he 
came to realize the depth of this corruption. He was aware, he was made aware, as we'll hear next week, about this corruption. So she is pregnant. So now he has a problem. Because, unlike today, rape, taking another man's wife in this context, is a capital offense. This is something that demands a life be taken. And he's the king. And you know what the king isn't? Above the law. So now he has to figure out what to do next. So David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. This is over a 40-mile trip that he made. He got an order. The king wants to see you. Me? Not just you. Me. Okay, I'm going. I don't know what's going on. I'm going. 40 miles. He's there. So how's it going? These are trivial concerns. There are messengers running back and forth with updates on the war. But here he calls one of the 30, one of the great warriors, and asks him for a basic status update. And literally, uh, David asked how Joab was doing, how the troops were doing, how the war was going. And the word that we have in the Hebrew, he's asking about, hey, the shalom of Joab, the peace of Joab, the peace of the troops, the, the, the peace of the war. How's the wholeness, the fullness of the war? The word shalom is used three times. You know what he doesn't ask? about the shalom of Uriah. But you know what else is missing? One of my preaching mentors said, just as important as what the text is saying is what the author is doing with what the text is saying. Why? Why is it the Holy Spirit inspired the author of this text to convey it to us in this way? He asks these three questions. That's verse 8. I'm sorry, that's verse 7. You know what verse 8 isn't? Uriah answering the questions. The answers to the questions don't appear. And why don't they appear? Because they don't matter. David doesn't care. And that's not the point of the story. In fact, the fact that we don't have the answers to these questions tells us quite so much about what's going on here and what David is doing. Then he said to Uriah, Go down to your house. Wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace. And a gift from the king followed him. What was that gift? We don't know. Some suspect it was a great meal that was being prepared for him uh, so that he and Bathsheba would be able to enjoy a romantic dinner as he's home from war. So we see what the king is trying to do. He is trying to get Uriah to lay with his wife so that when she is pregnant, it'll be no surprise because he no, wasn't away at war. He came home. But Uriah, verse 9, slept at the door of the palace with all of his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. He did not go see Bathsheba. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why, why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and the soldiers are camping in the open fields. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. There's so much happening in this little verse. The ark. Why is he mentioning the ark? I'm going to put something out here as a maybe. This is not me preaching. 
This is me hypothesizing a maybe that's not relevant to the ultimate argument where I'm going, so it's okay. Palace intrigue. Do you think there's gossip in the palace? So the king says, hey, who's that? And the messenger says, oh, well, that's Bathsheba. Hey, you, you two, you three, you four, we don't know how many, we just know it's more than one. You go get her, bring her to me. People are knowing what's going on, particularly when she sends a message through messengers, I'm pregnant. Gossip is happening. It's a long journey from the battlefield back home. Uh, It's entirely possible that Uriah heard what was going on because he says, the ark, Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. Well, what's in the ark? In the ark is the table of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the very thing that says you do not covet another man's wife, the very thing that says you do not commit adultery. He mentions it. When I read it, when I started studying for this sermon, Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, I thought, does he know? Why would he say that? And we don't know, but he may. But either way, the author of this text, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the ark is mentioned, and the reminder of the law, the very laws that David was breaking, is brought before us. And the other thing we see here is when we read in Leviticus And when we read the account of David as a general, he requires that his soldiers, his men, stay ritually clean and focused and that they abstain from any distractions, including sexual activity, when they're in battle. So by telling Uriah to go home, he's asking Uriah to be unfaithful to his vow because he's a servant of the Lord. He's one who must stay clean per the king's own request. What we see with Uriah is a man of integrity and faithfulness beyond expectation. We don't want to miss that Uriah, a foreigner, a resident foreigner, shows greater faithfulness to God's law than the king over God's people. Let's not miss that. Well, okay, plan A didn't work. Well, let's go, let's, let's punt. Let's go for another one here. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. Okay, so now we know what the backup plan is. Let's get him drunk, let's get him not thinking clearly, and get him home to Bathsheba. But David got him drunk, and Uriah went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants but he did not go home. Uh, I want to share something that one of my, uh, Dr. Abraham Curavilla, one of my mentors, said about this passage that's so true. The loyal, abstinent, and self-sacrificing soldier is requisitioned as a foil for the disloyal, indulgent, and selfish king. David has truly completed the journey from the hero of the story to the bad guy of the story. All right, so the plan didn't work. I needed him to come home, and I needed him to go and be with Bathsheba. He didn't do it. Okay, so I'm going to get him drunk so he's not thinking clearly. I'm going to try again. He still didn't do it. All right, next step. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. David committed a capital crime the rape of Bathsheba. Somebody has to die, and David doesn't want it to be him. So by taking Uriah out, his own sentence can be commuted because there's no one to make an accusation. 
Do you see how this is spiraling out of control? David was murdering one of his mighty men. And we go down to verse 17. We see that when the men from the city came out to attack Joab, some of David's shoulders, shoulders, soldiers fell in battle, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So his plan, plan C, if you will, succeeded. But you notice what else happened? It wasn't just Uriah. Other soldiers were with him. Collateral damage. And David's like, whatever. I need to do what I need to do. And if that seems harsh that I'm saying David said, whatever. I'm going to do what we need to do. Let's keep reading. When we go down to verse 25, this is after David receives the report from Joab that the plan succeeded and that Uriah is dead and these old other soldiers are dead. David's response, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. What does that mean? He's a soldier. Soldiers are going to die. Don't worry about it. Don't be upset. Let's move on. This is being said by the man who orchestrated the murder of this soldier, and other innocent soldiers died along the way. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage them. I just want us to look at the progression here. A glance turned into a lingering gaze. He lusted from afar. He found out who she was, how wrong it would be, sent for her, took her, lay with her. And then when the consequences of his actions came up, all right, let's lie, deceive, and manipulate to get out of this. Let's bring the soldier back and have him lay with his wife. Nobody can say it's my kid anymore. Failed. Let's get him drunk. Failed. All right, let's kill him. All right, we killed him, and we killed some other soldiers along the way, and now I'm dismissing the whole thing. Each new stage of deceit and corruption becomes easier and more heartbreaking than the last. And this is what sin does, friends. This is what sin does. This is what addiction does. This is what the things that we feed in us that we need not feed, that we ought not feed, when we start feeding them, that food's not enough. It needs to be more. It needs to be more. And we see this in the lives of so many. And here, specifically, we hear it from King David. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. Well, of course. If she were cheating on David, or if she were cheating on Uriah with David, would she be mourning for Uriah? This, this, that's not what happened. And notice, what does it say? It says, when Uriah's wife heard. Her name is only mentioned one time in this entire chapter. And it's when the messenger says, oh, well, isn't this Bathsheba? That's the only time her name is mentioned. Otherwise, he sends for the woman. And here we have Uriah's wife. The rest of the narrative deletes her name and talks about her in an impersonal way. Why? Again, what is the author doing with what he is saying? The author is using this to highlight her reduction to a mere object of David's lust rather than a woman created in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect. Her name has been removed from the narrative. 
until a few chapters later when she's grieving the death of her son. She has been robbed of her identity. This is what sexual assault does. It robs people of their identity. It reduces them to an object. And this is what King David has done. In verse 27, when the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. David's legacy is forever stained. When we hear David talked about in the histories going forward, it's mentioned, a man after God's own heart. Except, this is a blot that has followed him forever. And I don't have time to talk about the additional consequences, but the consequences for this are excessive. Not excessive, extreme. So, I asked the question at the beginning of this sermon, before we started talking about this dark, dark chapter of David's history, how do we guard our hearts against corruption and compromise? The answer is in the text. And it's an easy answer to say. It's a harder answer to live into. We need to realign our hope and our security to the author of our hope and our certainty. We need to know who our hope is in. So I have two points of application for us. They come out in questions. The first one is, where is our hope? We need to ask ourselves that question. Where is our hope? Is our hope in a king like David? A man who's after God's own heart, who seemingly can do no wrong? I suggest that our hope should not be after a man after God's own heart, but in God and God alone. In him is our hope. Thank, thank God for faithful men and women. But my hope is not in anyone other than Jesus. So what can we do about this when we ask this question, where is our hope? Uh, first, uh, we need to hold leadership accountable. We need to be careful not to put anyone on a pedestal. Not to think that anyone is above sincere questions and transparency. Leadership is a gift and a privilege, not a right or a power. We need to hold our leaders accountable. We need to be able to ask them the hard questions. We need to not put them on pedestals. I was talking to someone a while ago uh, about different forms of church government, and this would be a rabbit trail that could go on for hours, so I'm not going to do it to you. Uh, But we were talking about different things, and one of them was, well, what about the pastor who wants to dissolve the elder board and be the sole authority. This is so dangerous. This is the situation King David was in. He was not a pastor by any stretch, but he didn't have accountability. Leaders need accountability. CEOs need boards. Pastors need elders. So we need to hold accountability. But two, we need to hold ourselves accountable. And you know who is your absolute worst resource in holding yourself accountable? You. Uh, I am my worst accountability partner. Uh, We need to ask the question, am I aware of this sin that is dancing right here, that maybe I'm not in it, I'm not doing it, but it's dancing right here, that Satan could use to take the legs out from underneath of me? Am I aware of it? And here's the bigger question, who else in my life is aware of it? Are you known Is there someone in your life who knows you completely? And if the answer to that question is no, 
There's a bunch of people who know different facets of who I am, but there's no one person who knows me completely. I, I pray that you would take a beat and you would pray that the Holy Spirit would bring a godly man, a godly woman into your life that would be a safe relationship where you can be known and be seen and they can ask you the hard questions because none of us are exempt from David's fall. Now, the second question, so where is our hope? The second question is, how can we provide hope? How can we be a voice for the voiceless? When I think of Bathsheba and her name disappearing from chapter 11, her being reduced to this object, it's, it's heartbreaking. Who are those, like Bathsheba, in our lives that we know whose names have been taken from them? Who have been reduced? Who maybe don't even believe in their own inherent dignity and worth anymore as an image bearer of God? Who are these in our life? And how can we encourage them? What can we do? I just have two suggestions, and again, each of these suggestions could be a sermon in and of itself for at least a very long lecture. The first suggestion is listen. Listen. Listen, withhold judgment, and enter into their pain. Just weep with them. It is such a rare thing to be heard. What a gift we can give someone, particularly someone who's hurting, whether it's church trauma or sexual assault, as we've been talking about this morning, to sit and to listen and to weep at the things that are not as they should be. And the second thing, and this is hard to do, uh, this is something that I struggle with because I'm always looking for answers and I'm always looking for reasons. When we initially hear the story, when we initially hear the heartbreak, when we initially hear the story of violence or betrayal, Believe them. Believe them until you are given reason to do otherwise. I'm not talking blind naivete. I'm talking about entering into the situation, hearing, listening, believing, until you have reason to do otherwise. I like to think of this as disciplining ourselves to listen from a starting point of compassionate charity. Regardless of the details of the situation that may never be fully known, there's a person who is hurting in front of us. Let's be there for them and bear this burden with them. King David, in so many ways throughout the text, is an example of what it is to be a godly man. But he is also a sobering reminder that there is no one apart from the Son of God who is worthy of our absolute confidence, trust, and hope. All of us look to him. He is our hope. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I confess that this was a heavy and difficult text. We know nothing is in Scripture as an accident or as something to be set aside. So I pray for all of us that you would speak through your Spirit to our hearts what you would have us learn from this text, but more than learning, how would you have us live differently because of what we have read this morning? The heart is deceitfully wicked. It wants what it wants. Father, I pray that you would work in us by the Spirit so that our hearts would want what you want. I pray that you would make us look more like the sun and that that would start with our desires and our affections. We pray this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit.
Amen.